You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, for the Solemnity of Christ the King. Jesus said to his disciples, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, escorted by all the angels of heaven, he will sit upon his royal throne, and all the nations will be assembled before him. Then he will separate them into two groups, as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep he will place on his right hand, the goats on his left. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you have my father's blessing. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. I was ill, and you comforted me. In prison, and you came to visit me. Then the just will ask him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or see you thirsty and give you drink? When did we welcome you away from home, or clothe you in your nakedness? When did we visit you when you were ill or in prison? The king will answer them, I assure you, as often as you did it for one of my least brothers, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Out of my sight you condemned, into that everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was away from home and you gave me no welcome, naked and you gave me no clothing. I was ill and in prison and you did not come to comfort me. Then they in turn will ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or away from home or naked or ill or in prison and not attend you in your needs? He will answer them, I assure you, as often as you neglected to do it to one of these least ones, you neglected to do it to me. These will go off to eternal punishment and the just to eternal life. If anyone were to ask me which passage of the New Testament I found most daunting, I would have no hesitation in citing this one. Perhaps daunting is not the right word. Disquieting comes closer to characterizing the thoughts and feelings stirred up by the words here quoted. Not surprisingly, it's suggested as a framework for an examination of conscience before confession in the Penitence Prayer Book, compiled by David Constant in 1976 when the new rite of penance was being introduced. The image which remains indelibly stamped on the mind is that of the separation of sheep from goats. All through the New Testament, sheep and lambs appear in sympathetic images, culminating in the acclamation of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. And the image of our Lord as the shepherd is found in both the first reading today and in the psalm. He-goats are referred to in the last line of the reading, again connected with judgment. While in the entrance antiphon, Christ is again described as the Lamb who was slain. At first sight, it would seem that the goat was not beloved in Bible times any more than it is today. Known chiefly for its destructiveness, this is said to be the reason for the legend that the goat was created by the devil. But in the Song of Songs, the bridegroom says to the bride, 
Your hair is like a flock of goats frisking down the slopes of Gilead. In Bible times, we're told, strong light tents were woven from goat hair. It was also woven into cloth for garments or curtains. In Exodus, we read that eleven large curtains were woven from goat hair and made into a tent over the tabernacle that housed the Ark of the Covenant. Goat skins were made into bottles for water, wine, or milk. Butter and cheese were made from goat's milk, and of course there was the meat. That of the kid was eaten as a special dish at feasts, and even the poorest family possessed at least one goat. And what was it that the prodigal son's brother reproached his father with? But you never offered me so much as a kid for me to celebrate with my friends. Today there are still herds of domestic goats in Bible lambs, very often looked after by the same shepherd who cares for the sheep. But what about the wild goats who have no shepherd? They live in rocky places and are very shy, as this poem by James Stevens tells: "The Goat Paths." The crooked paths go every way upon the hill. They wind about through the heather in and out of the quiet sunniness. And there the goats, day after day, stray in sunny quietness, cropping here and cropping there. As they pause and turn and pass, now a bit of heather spray, now a mouthful of the grass. In the deeper sunniness, in the place where nothing stirs, quietly in quietness, in the quiet of the firs, for a time they come and lie staring on the roving sky. If you approach, they run away. They leap and stare. Away they bound with a sudden angry sound. To the sunny quietude, crouching down where nothing stirs in the silence of the firs, couching down again to brood in the sunny solitude. The fact that goats manage to find enough to eat, even when grass is scarce, is surely a point in their favour, as is their extreme hardiness. And that reminds me of the enterprising man who bought a second-hand minibus and christened it Mountain Goat. He'd just moved to the English Lake District, where bus services were poor and the terrain far from flat. In a few years, he had a herd of seven and a thriving business. Apart from their physical characteristics, goats are noted for their capriciousness, which gave rise to the phrase "acting or playing the giddy goat," meaning to fool around. The literal sense of giddy is possessed by a god. And what about cutting a caper, skipping or leaping about playfully? The Latin for goat, caper, explains that. There is one expression, an old Americanism, which appeared in the dictionaries around 1912: to get someone's goat. To annoy or irritate someone, Brewer explains it this way: The expression is said to relate to a practice among racehorse trainers of soothing a nervous horse by putting a goat in its stall. Someone wanting the horse to lose could sneak in and remove the goat. The horse would again succumb to an attack of nerves and would not run well. The explanation seems contrived, however. Well, that's as it may be, but it seems to give the goat another point. The most sobering word connected with this much-maligned animal is surely scapegoat. 
From earliest times, the goat has been associated with the idea of sin. And if the devil was supposed to have created the goat, he was also frequently depicted as one. His mark or symbol was the cloven hoof. And although not only goats have cloven hooves, Satan was always represented with the legs and feet of a goat. And however he disguised himself, he could never conceal his cloven feet. The scapegoat was part of the ancient ritual among the Hebrews for the Day of Atonement laid down by the Law of Moses. Two goats were brought to the altar of the tabernacle, and the high priest cast lots, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel, a demon of the desert, in ancient Hebrew and Canaanite belief. The Lord's goat was sacrificed, the other was the scapegoat. And the high priest, having by confession transferred to it his own sins and the sins of the people, it was taken to the wilderness and allowed to escape. But, we read in the Jerusalem Bible comment, it will be noticed that the scapegoat is not sacrificed to Azazel. Christ, who took on himself the sins of mankind, is often described as the scapegoat. And the poet Robert Graves imagines the scapegoat as Christ's constant companion in the desert. And ever with him went, of all his wanderings, comrade, with ragged coat, gaunt ribs, poor innocent, bleeding foot, burning throat, the guileless old scapegoat. For forty nights and days followed in Jesus' ways, sure God behind him kept, tears like a lover wept. Goats were also sacrificed in what were called sin offerings, sacrifices which paid off or expiated a worshipper's ritual unintentional faults against the Lord. Sins of the high priest had to be atoned for with the offering of a bull, sins of leaders in the community with a male goat, sins of private individuals with female animals, goats, lambs, turtle doves or pigeons. Whenever I come across a reference to the separation of sheep from goats, I remember a headscarf I once had. It was a large woollen square depicting a flock of sheep on the right side and, yes, of goats on the left. I lost the scarf when I took it off one day to make a phone call, but I've often wondered who the artist was and what inspired this unusual picture. In his narrative poem about the legendary King Arthur, Idylls of the King, Tennyson puts these words into the mouth of the dying king, spoken to his last surviving knight, Sir Bedivere. If thou shouldst never see my face again, pray for my soul. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Wherefore, let thy voice rise like a fountain for me, night and day, for what are men better than sheep or goats that nourish a blind life within the brain? If, knowing God, they lift not hands of prayer both for themselves and those who call them friend. Pray we must indeed, but saying Lord, Lord is not enough. We shall be judged on how we have treated our fellow human beings. 
A note in the liturgical year reads, in fact, The Gospel stresses the fact that active love of neighbour will be a decisive criterion at the final judgment, because Christ identifies himself with all who suffer. In our Gospel, Jesus lists what we call the corporal works of mercy, recommended also in the Old Testament. With this difference, while he did not mention burying the dead, he added visiting those in prison. Let's take just one of these works, Welcoming the Stranger, and hear what Charles de Fougueux, founder of the Little Brothers of Jesus, wrote of the universal charity he wished to see characteristic of his fraternity. The Little Brothers will not only gladly welcome the guests, the poor, the sick who ask for hospitality, they will invite in those whom they encounter, begging them, kneeling if necessary, like Abraham to the angels, not to pass your servants by, without accepting their hospitality, their attentions, their marks of brotherly love. Everyone in the neighborhood must know that the fraternity is the house of God, where every poor or sick person is always invited, called, wanted, welcomed with joy and gratitude by brothers who love and cherish them and regard their entry as the discovery of a great treasure. They are, in fact, the greatest treasure of all, Jesus himself. Insofar as you do this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you do it to me. One significant word among the many important ones in today's Gospel is the one which Jesus uses when speaking of himself. For the first time, he refers to himself as the King. And today is not only the 34th and last Sunday of ordinary time, it's also the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. Formerly celebrated on the last Sunday in October, the feast was instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925. In his encyclical Quas Primas, he said that the acknowledgement of the kingship of Christ was the most effective weapon against the destructive forces of the age, and would bring, in the Pope's words, the signal benefits of true liberty, of calm order, of harmony and of peace. But these results depended on a widespread recognition and acceptance of Christ's kingship and the Pope went on to explain. It is necessary that the royal dignity of our Lord be recognized and accepted as widely as possible. To this end, it seems to us that nothing else would help so effectively as the institution of a special feast dedicated to Christ our King. The annual celebration of the sacred mysteries is more effective in informing people about the faith and in bringing to them the joys of the spiritual life than the solemn pronouncements of the teaching church. Documents are often read only by a few learned men. Feasts move and teach all the faithful. The former speak but once, the latter every year and forever. The former bring a saving touch to the intellect. The latter influence not only the mind, but the heart and man's whole nature.
one of our modern scholars comments that the Last Judgment is described in Matthew using the images of the Eastern Sovereign who summons his court, all his angels, and pronounces sentence, or of the King Shepherd who separates the ewes from the rams. Interesting that he doesn't say goats, and he goes on. At this judgment, God works as at the creation, when he separated light from darkness, blessed man and woman, and formulated the first curse for the sin of humanity. The reference to eternal fire is inspired by the Hebrew idea of punishment, which includes also suffering for the loss of God. Out of my sight, you condemned. And let's close with these lines from D. H. Lawrence's poem, The Hands of God, written when he was dying of tuberculosis in the spring of 1930. Lawrence is not usually thought of as a religious man, but he'd been brought up on the Bible and was rereading it in those last days. The first line of the poem is from the letter to the Hebrews. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is a much more fearful thing to fall out of them. Save me, O God, from falling into the ungodly knowledge of myself as I am without God. Let me never know, O God, let me never know what I am or should be when I have fallen out of your hands, the hands of the living God. Save me from that, O God. Let me never know myself apart from the living God.